Grab your Bible this morning and open it to 2 Peter chapter 3, if you would. And uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to continue a journey we started four weeks ago called Rooted, Digging into the Promises of God. And what we're talking about in this series is really two things. One is that God has made us certain very specific promises. And he wants us to anchor our faith on those very specific promises. There are some things that he has no holds barred promised. And we want to be in touch with those and understand that he invites us to rely on them. So that's the first thing we've been doing in this series. The other thing we're learning in this series is that in our culture that is just swamped with urban legends, there are a lot of ideas about there, out there about things people say God has promised, which he really hasn't. And that's actually a tactic of the enemy of our souls. Because of what he seeks to do, like he did with Jesus in the desert, is to pretend God has promised something he hasn't. Because then when that promise doesn't come true, who are we angry with? Who do we feel betrayed by? See, it's a deception. So we are learning what God has promised and we're learning what he hasn't promised. And over these past three weeks, we've learned, first of all, Jesus' great promise that when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, we'll always be provided for. We will always be taken care of. The Lord was unequivocal about that. In the second week together, we learned that we can trust who God is even when we don't understand what he's doing. And we saw Jesus demonstrate that when he met with Mary and Martha, whose brother he hadn't come in time to heal, but whom he would raise from the dead. And so we learned that we trust who God is when we don't know what he's doing. And then in the third week, we learned that he promises a peace that passes understanding. He promises freedom from anxiety and worry if we will practice the simple daily discipline of giving thanks to him, of personally giving thanks to him day in and day out for his blessings. He says, if you do that, I'll give you a peace that passes understanding. This morning, we're going to take the next step in that journey, and we're going to talk about another promise that God has made, which has to do with something which at first seems very different from the first three. But we'll unpack that together this morning. Uh, to kind of get us started this morning, raise your hand if you're familiar with the word adulting. Go ahead and raise your hand. It's kind of, that word's kind of having a moment in our culture, right? Adulting is when, you know, you move away from home and start being responsible for yourself, right? Uh, I won't ask for a show of hands of how many people would like to be in a prayer group that their kids would start adulting. Okay, we won't do that this morning. But, but that's what it's really about. Is about kind of getting out on your own and, and figuring out what it means to no longer live on mom and dad's coattails. So this week I, I trolled the internet a little bit and collected a few proverbs about adulting. I, I thought I'd share them with you as we get started this morning. For example, adulting is mostly just going to bed when you don't want to and waking up when you don't want to. That's what it's about. Okay, that's kind of a simple definition there. Uh, adulting means that one day you're young and the next you have a favorite grocery store. That's how it works, right? It's a sign that you're growing up. You're becoming an adult. Um, adulting means using the money you got for your birthday to renew your car registration, right? Because that's just, now you're on your own. Now you're a grown-up. Adulting means your favorite childhood memory is not having to pay bills. Somebody say amen, right? That means you're maturing. Adulting is like folding a fitted sheet. Nobody really knows how to do it. You just figure it out as you go, right? So there's, there's that. Adulting is when you get excited to just go home, <laughs> right? Yeah, there it is. There's some reality there. Adulting is mostly about being tired and wishing you hadn't made plans with anyone. That's, that's uh, also 
a sign that something's changing. Here, here's the last one. I like this. Adulting is like going to the vet where we're all the dogs that were really excited for a ride in the car until we realized where we were going. <laughs> that, that's pretty cool. That captures it for me. You know, we laugh about adulting because we know that letting go of our childish ideas is, you know, part of life. It's part of growing up. Uh, taking responsibility for things, living in a mature way. And, and we also know that the truth is that adulthood brings joys that childhood can't even approach. It's not until adulthood that we begin to discover the incredible joy of marriage. It's not until adulthood that we're able to experience the joy of being parents and who would trade that for anything. It's in adulthood that we grow those mature friendships where you look in somebody else's eyes and you know that they know that you know who you are and what you've been through and what you've learned, those mature friendships. It's in adulthood that we learn the peculiar joy of self-sacrifice, of losing so that somebody else can win. It's in adulthood that we discover that kind of joy. And it's in adulthood that we become able to be thankful for the really hard things that have happened in our lives. You can't do that when you're a kid. It's when you adult that you begin to say to yourself, you know what? There was a priceless good that came from that. I, I could kind of go on and on, but let me, let me offer you for today another definition of adulting. And that is, adulthood means behaving like tomorrow is real. Because it is. <laughs> because it really is coming and is, in fact, just as real as today. You know, if you've been following the news in the last couple of weeks, then you may recognize this man. His name is Muhammad Abu al-Baghdadi. He's the founder and the leader of an awful organization called ISIS, which has been responsible for some really bad stuff. And it was about a week and a half ago that tomorrow came for him. He imagined for a long time that maybe it wouldn't come, that he wouldn't be found, that he wouldn't be caught, that justice wouldn't fall, but it did. It was always going to. It's the same with Osama bin Laden. It's the same with many people in many kinds of situations. Tomorrow always comes. And in fact, what always comes is judgment. Judgment and justice are inevitable. And one of the promises God makes to us is the promise that judgment with justice will come. Now that's not just a negative promise as we're going to unpack this morning. In fact, it's mostly a positive one as we're going to see. But what God wants us to understand this morning is that he has made a promise about judgment and he has said judgment with justice is coming. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 in your Bible and, and maybe brace yourself a little bit this morning because we're going to talk about some challenging stuff. We're going to talk about God's promise of judgment with justice. And we'll begin in 2 Peter chapter 3 starting with verse 3. Here's what the Bible says to us. Peter is writing to all the churches and he says this. First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come 
scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is this coming that he promised, this judgment with justice? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. We don't think it's coming. We don't believe in it. Peter says, they deliberately forget. We're going to come back to that phrase. They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water and by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Those folks didn't think judgment was coming and then it did. Peter says, in the same way, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. They too will be judged. Being kept for the day of judgment and for the destruction of ungodly men. We'll come back to that as well. In other words, Peter says judgment is coming. (laughs) Tomorrow is real. And adulting spiritually means living inside of that reality. Now, let's break this down a little bit together. Peter says that that some argue that since it hasn't happened yet, it won't ever. (laughs) What a silly bit of nonsense when you think about it. To argue that something won't happen because it hasn't happened yet is juvenile. It's like saying that you'll never fall in love because you haven't yet. Or or saying that there'll never be a cure for cancer because it hasn't happened yet. Or to say like a previous generation said that man will never go to the moon because it hasn't happened yet. Arguing that something won't happen because it hasn't happened yet is nonsense. You know kind of my hobby of history and in the first decade of the last century, the early 1900s, it was widely assumed in, in, uh, around the world in governments, in universities, many books and newspapers were written about the fact that, hey, mankind has progressed beyond war. <laughs> There won't ever be any more. We can't afford it. It's too much of a hassle. There'll never be another war. Within 10 years of that opinion becoming popular, we had World War I, the Great Year War. And then in another 25 years, we had World War II, the two greatest wars in history. The belief that that wasn't going to happen was a fantasy. It was disconnected from reality. But just like that, in the same way, lots of folks think that Judgment Day isn't coming. Jesus says it is. I remember when I was a boy in grade school, and uh, if I can just confess on myself, um, you know, I had a problem in grade school with fighting. I was one of those kids that you probably didn't want to be my teacher. And um, it it was a chronic problem. It was ongoing, and uh, I would get in trouble for it, and my parents would warn me about it and threaten me about it, but for whatever reason, I struggled with it. I remember one time in fifth grade, uh, I got in another fight at recess at lunch hour, only this time, it didn't turn out like the others did. No teacher, no adult came and broke it up. The two of us pretty much spent ourselves wailing on each other, and then we went our separate ways. I went to my class, he went to his, and I remember thinking, well, that's never happened before, and I sat there in class, and nobody came for me, and nobody called me to the principal's office, and I thought, wow, I guess judgment's never going to come in this particular case. And as the day went on and I went class to class and nobody intervened, I started feeling pretty good. It's forgotten. It might as well not have happened. And no judgment for me. Until that sixth period bell rang and I headed down the hall to go home and there was the vice principal standing in the hallway waiting for me. Only this time he had papers in his hand. That hadn't happened before. 
And all of a sudden, I realized that not only had judgment come, the judgment I thought would never come, but it was coming in a whole way I hadn't anticipated. He handed me paperwork to take home to my parents because I was being suspended for three days of school. Oh my goodness, suddenly my fantasy about judgment not coming was over. And I had to go home fully aware that another judgment was coming when I handed these papers to my parents, right? And, and they did. My mom made me sit in my room. I'll never forget it and write, I will not fight in school 1,000 times. I had such a mean mom, you know what I mean? I wish I could say that that experience changed me, but it didn't. When I got into high school, I carried on in a lot of the same ways. And then I started skipping lots of classes. I got to my senior year, it got really chronic. I was cutting class all the time. You know, Ron and I didn't grow up believers. I'm not in a church home. But, you know, I was just cutting class all the time. And, and, and after I missed some classes and, you know, nobody tracked me down and nobody made me do anything and nobody punished me, I started thinking, wow, judgment for this is never going to come. And then I got to my last week of my senior year. And once again, I found the vice principal waiting for me with paperwork. And he said, not the same vice principal, okay, but a different one. And he said, Greg, I have bad news for you. You've skipped so many classes, you're not going to graduate. Oh, my goodness. I had already enlisted in the military. I had plans, but all that was contingent on graduating from high school. And all of a sudden, this judgment that I had deceived myself into thinking was never going to come was happening right now. Long story short, a teacher showed me great mercy and, and made an exception, and I was able to graduate and move on. But he said to me something I'll never forget. He said, Greg... Don't deceive yourself into thinking judgment doesn't come. It does come. It always comes. It will come. And you've got to live inside of that awareness. More so than ever now that you're leaving high school. In the same way, God says to us, hey, don't deceive yourself into thinking that, that judgment isn't coming. Lots of people do, but Jesus unequivocally promises that it is. In his own words, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 and following, he says this. He says, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, carrying on as if judgment would never come. Until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and swept them all away. The reality was always there. They simply chose not to believe it. And so Peter says to us, don't be deluded by scoffers. And he says they do something very specific. He says, if you look at your Bible, he says they deliberately forget. What does that mean? It means to pay no attention to what a part of you knows to what you feel deep down in your soul, in your spirit. It means to turn your attention away from it and to just ignore it like we sometimes do with our consciences. Peter says these scoffers deliberately forget that God has promised to bring judgment and that it will come. There's an old Bedouin proverb that illustrates what it's like to deliberately forget things. In the proverb, this, this Bedouin man is sleeping in his tent in the desert. It's late at night. It's pitch dark. He wakes up in the middle of the night, and he's got the munchies. He wants something to eat. And he remembers that underneath his cot, there is actually a bowl of dates. 
He'd seen him there before. So he feels in the dark under his cot and he pulls out the bowl of dates and he's thinking, it's great, I don't have to get up. And, and he starts to eat them, but they taste funny. And they taste so funny that he lights a candle in order to see why. And when he lights the candle, he notices that the dates are all filled with worms. And in the proverb, you know what he does? He blows out the candle and keeps eating. <laughs> What's he doing? He's pretending something isn't real. He's deliberately forgetting. And that's what the proverb is about. That's what Peter is talking about in this moment. But the reality is, friends, that a good God, let me say this again, a good God cannot and will not just let stuff go. He can't because he is good. You know, in systematic theology class that we do with the staff and in some of the small groups, we talk about this reality, and I use an illustration. So walk with me in this little word picture to help us understand why judgment is necessary from a good God. Imagine that you're out on Friday night with your friends, and you know maybe you go to the movie, and afterwards you got the munchies, and so you stop in a Denny's in Auburn because it's open all night. You guys pull in there. You're going to have some late night breakfast. You know how this goes. And so you're sitting there having breakfast. You're the only people in the restaurant. And then it's one in the morning. In comes this family. Father, mother, three kids. The youngest one's a two-year-old little girl. And they, they are traveling. They got their U-Haul. They're moving or whatever. And they pull into Denny's at one in the morning and come in. And they, they just so happen to choose the table next to you. And they sit down to start eating as well. And you, you kind of can tell as they come in that dad's a little edgy. You know, dad's a little scary. And you're sort of aware of that. And as they're sitting at the table, the little girl, the two-year-old, she, being a two-year-old, she spills her milk all across the table. And dad leaps to his feet, grabs a plate, and begins beating her in the head. What do you do? <laughs> You know, I tell this story in systematic theology and you just watch the guys coming out of their chair. I'm going to stop him. I'm going after him. It's Enumclaw, so most of those guys are armed, so they just start shooting, right, at that moment. But, um, you know, they just have this react. I've got to stop him. I'm going to stop him. Yeah, and the ladies, they react the same way too, but, you know, the ladies tend to have a little different flavor. I'm going to get help. We're going to call the police. Some of the married women, they sound tougher than the unmarried women. But anyway, you know, the same feeling is there. I've got to do something. I've got to stop him. Listen to me, friends. If you can sit there and do nothing in the presence of what's wrong, you're not good. You just aren't. If you can say that's their business, doesn't matter to me, it's their family, to each his own, case sera, sera, you are not good. And here's why I tell the picture. See, church, that's the position God is in. He is a good God, and we are sinful people. And to ask him to do nothing about it is insane and impossible. He can't or he's not good. And he will always be good. And so judgment is necessary. That's what uh, Peter is talking about in verse 7 when he speaks of judgment coming on ungodly men. And so what we want to understand, what Peter wants us to understand, first of all, is that this judgment is coming. It is as real as anything that has happened. And it will come for everyone. Now, Peter also tells us, and this is important, just quick aside, that God's judgment comes on his timetable, not ours. 
That's really important. As a matter of fact, look at verses 8 and 9 in the passage that I just read. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Here's what Peter says. He says, don't forget this one thing, dear friends, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. And the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words... God has delayed judgment, not because he's never going to bring it, but because in his mercy, he wants as many as possible to escape from that judgment, to not have to be the object of it. He wants everyone to repent. He wants that dad to have his heart changed before that moment requiring judgment comes. And it's important that we know this so that we don't mistake his patience for a lack of justice. Because it isn't a lack of justice. It is an incredible mercy. But judgment is still coming. Again, in systematic theology, when we talk about this, I say you are much better off picturing God as like the sheriff in an old western than a grandfather who lets everything go. The sheriff in the old western is the greatest guy in the world until you cross that line and then he becomes the one you do not want to deal with. And that's who God is. Or to put it another way, don't think of him as a mall cop, all right? Because he's not a mall cop. Think of him more like this, right? You knew I had to pick that particular image, right? Because it's me. But no, in, in all seriousness, understand God's goodness requires his judgment and he promises that it is coming. The only reason it hasn't come yet is not because he's indifferent to wrong. It's because he's patient, seeking to see as many as possible repent and change their ways. He's more patient than us, but not to the point of canceling judgment. So that judgment will come, but on his timetable, not ours. And this is important for two reasons. First, because some people think his patience is license. They think, hey, I haven't been punished yet, so I'm never going to be. But Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He said, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. To the man who sows uh, to please his sinful nature, from that nature he will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Don't mistake his patience for license. You say, man, I did some bad stuff and the hammers never come down. It will. Justice and judgment are coming. Don't deceive yourself into thinking otherwise. Second, we need to understand this because we can get so impatient with God's timetable that we get angry and moody and faithless. I remember when our son Isaiah lived at home and he was a teenager and and he would catch something in the news and the things that would set him off would be something that had to do with abusing a child or harming a child. He would just get red and angry and he would just be furious that someone would harm a child. And, And I'd say, son, you have to understand God is more upset about it than you are. His judgment will come on his timetable. Nobody gets away with anything. And you can take comfort in that, son. And you can also take comfort in the fact that as angry as you are right now and the judgment that you imagine bringing on them is nothing compared to the judgment that a father God will bring. So your anger and your outrage pales compares to his. 
And I said that to him so that he would understand that God is good, dangerously so. And we are called to understand the same thing. The truth about you and I is that we need to know that judgment is coming because it helps keep us on the straight and narrow path, both negatively so that we live life with healthy fear and positively so that we look forward to justice. And we know that it is coming. Moses said to the children of Israel these words. He said, the fear of the Lord, Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, the fear of the Lord will be with you to keep you from sinning. You know, here's the reality, is that when you live like an adult inside the promise of judgment, and you're aware of it, and you believe in it, and you trust in it, it'll change the way you act. It'll change the way you talk. It'll change the way you relate. It will make you a better person. That's what the promise of judgment does even here and now before the judgment comes. The fear of the Lord will be with you to keep you from sinning. Sometimes I'm tempted to just leave that toilet seat up when I'm done. I'm tempted. But the fear of the Lord helps me. And that's how you stay married for 35 years, right? Makes you a better person. No, but in all seriousness, in all seriousness, church, the promise of judgment will make you a better man, will make you a better woman, a better father, husband, mother, parent, friend, worker, believer, member of your church. Yeah. It's real and it's coming. Peter goes on to say in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. What does that mean? Unexpectedly, suddenly, right when you think it won't. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and everything in it will be laid bare. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 that that judgment comes for everybody. Nobody escapes it. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And judgment, by the way, friends, we're almost done this morning, doesn't just have to do with deeds, but also with words. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 these words. He said, I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, by your words you will be condemned. I'm stunned sometimes. Sometimes guys who buy the whole macho myth will come to me and say, ah, Pastor Greg, a little swearing on the job site, a few jokes with the fellas. It's no big deal. I'm like, have you paid no attention to what Jesus said? He said, every word will be judged. Mine, yours. And you know what? When you adult inside of that reality, it changes the way you talk. It changes the way you post on social media. It changes who you are. And that's what the promise of judgment does for us. And so Peter goes on to say in the last part of this passage, verses 11 and following, he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. For that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will be melted in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth that follows that judgment that is the home of righteousness. In other words, God's promise of judgment means we can look forward to a world 
where there is no misery, no sin, no wickedness, no child abuse, no hatred, no racism, no war, all that stuff. His promise of judgment is a promise of justice and we look forward to it because all of that stuff will finally be stopped. But it's stopped by judging ungodly men, ungodly people. You see, here's the reality, is that heaven is in heaven if judgment with justice doesn't come. Think about it this way. Those of us who are tempted to say, why doesn't God just let everybody in? How many rapists is a tolerable percentage in heaven? 1%, would we feel good about that? You know, one out of 100, that's pretty good, right? How many murderers? 1%, half a percent, we good with that, you know? How many liars? How many thieves? How many racists? How many impatient, irritated, self-centered ego slaves? How many people who just don't love other people? Once you start to think about it, you begin to realize that judgment is necessary. How many 49er fans can we really tolerate in heaven, right? Right? No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, okay? I know some of us are 49er fans. But no, seriously, understand, judgment is required in order for heaven to happen. And so we look forward to it because that city of righteousness that our hearts are hungry for comes because of judgment. Now, let me finish with one last story. Understand this, friends. When it comes to judgment, you and I don't create goodness, righteousness in our own power. God creates it when we repent and believe. God creates it in us when we simply turn to him and ask for it. And that's one of the things that judgment can help us do. Because when we realize that a good God will bring judgment with justice and we realize that we may be the object of it, that we are the object of it unless we've made our peace with him, you know, then it can be a very great blessing because it can bring us to repentance. In Matthew chapter 27, the scripture tells us my last story this morning about two men who found themselves facing judgment on the same day that Jesus went to the cross. The Bible tells us, Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 38, two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. He was a scoffer. He was somebody who had deliberately forgotten the promise of judgment. And so he hurled insults at Jesus. He said, aren't you the Christ? sarcastically, mockingly, save yourself and us. He didn't believe in God's timetable. But the other criminal rebuked him. He said, don't you fear God? Don't you realize you're under a sentence? We are punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. This man has done nothing. And then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In our 21st century culture, we don't fully grasp what's happening in this moment. When a man went to, when a person went to a king for mercy, this is how he would do it. He would say, remember me. Remember me. He was asking for mercy. And Jesus, who is unwilling that any should perish, who will save everyone that is willing to be saved, Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he was. And he was. See, the promise of judgment can help us get real with ourselves and with God. And that is its richest and deepest blessing.
If you're here this morning and you're saying to yourself, you know what, judgment's never coming. I'm home free. Ah, you're deceived. It is coming. But the one who brings it is willing in this moment to set you free from it. If you're willing to own your sin, if you're willing to say, God, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, be my Savior. If you're willing to say, remember me, that in this moment, the judge who's coming will set you aside from that judgment, begin to call you his daughter, his son, and begin to parent you from this moment forward. Can I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a moment? Maybe you're here and you've never allowed yourself to remember the fact that a good God must come and judge. And so you've been living in a fantasy thinking, hey, you're good to go. It won't happen. Jesus says it will. The Holy Spirit of God is saying to your heart right now, you know it will. And if that's you in this moment, you can say, God, remember me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I confess to you that I need a Savior. If you'll do that in this moment to a God who is listening to you right now, then Jesus will say to you, I got you. I remember you. You have my mercy. You can ask for it right here now, or you can be like the thief who sneered and went to his eternal destruction. It's your call. Maybe you're here and you say, yeah, I've done that. I've believed, but somewhere along the line, I stopped remembering, God, that you promised judgment and it's led me astray. Just tell him, just remember this morning. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. I lost touch with that. Forgive me, renew me, and he will. He will. And then he'll invite you to go from here and do some adulting, (laughs) do some acting like a grown-up, knowing that tomorrow is coming. As you relate to the folks at work, at school, in your neighborhood, in your family, who aren't ready for his judgment. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you for the beautiful evidence of your work inside of us this morning. And we thank you, God, for the promise of judgment. God, send us out looking forward to it, living inside of the reality of it, being humbled by it, being blessed by it. And send us out to share with those who don't believe in it. We pray it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? Mm.